0: Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 864, with Chef Frank Brightson. It starts with people. The number
1: one thing for me and for everyone else is get the right people into your business. The people that want to be there, the people that want to do the job.
0: Are you ready for It Factors, Success Stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and in today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by DiageoBarAcademy.com, a free online resource for hospitality professionals offering resources for bartenders at all levels. And in February of 2022, Diageo Bar Academy celebrates 10 years of 10-year anniversary. Congratulations. Over the past 10 years, Diageo Bar Academy has built a global community fueled by education and inspiration. And during this time, over 120 million bar professionals across 178 countries has joined Diageo Bar Academy in physical and virtual training sessions. Whether you are a bartender, bar back, or manager, or even if you're completely new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy to add access resources to help you learn new skills and stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's completely free, and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O geobaracademy.com. listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Nowadays, people don't want to speak face-to-face. They rather communicate via text message and keep it anonymous. Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is convenient to you. And I think the most valuable aspect of Talk to the Manager is that you give people an opportunity to vent before they go public in Write a negative review. Sometimes people just want to be heard and talk to the manager gives them that opportunity to be heard. Plus, you don't have to worry about your information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the phone number that talk to the manager provides. Also, with talk to the manager, it's like having a secret shopper. People will tell you any issues they come across at your restaurants, whether you want to hear them or not, but they'll be brought to your attention and that will help you improve your business. Show your guests you care enough to listen with talk. To the manager, head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. What up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today. But before we get into it, just a quick reminder that this podcast does need your support. And one of the best ways you can support this podcast is by sharing it. Sharing is caring. And if you know anybody out there who's aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry, or maybe they just Feel a little burnt out and they need some inspiration and motivation. Please put this podcast on their radar. Uh, you're doing them a favor and you're doing me a favor. And the, the more people that know about the show, uh, the, the better. Not only does it provide me more access to the resources I need to scale this thing, but also the mission statement is to transform the industry. So, uh, in order for that to happen, we need to spread the word. So get out there and share this thing and thank you in advance. So today, we're talking to Chef Frank Brightson. And if there was an episode to share, this is the one, probably one of the best recordings I've ever had. Uh, Chef Frank Brightson is a legend in New Orleans, and he's really just celebrated for maintaining the the culture of New Orleans and Creole cuisine. And um, it's, it's interesting. A lot of the people I interview on the show, they're all about growth and change and evolution. But what they're doing at Brightson's is really, Uh, the food isn't about growth. The the aesthetics isn't about change or anything. They're really about preserving the history of New Orleans in keeping the food as close to the tradition as possible. But we do talk about growth in today's episode and there's different types of growth. There's personal and inner growth. And I think that if you're trying to preserve something, you can still grow, and I think it's really important that we focus on what growth means to us and the different ways we can grow. For Chef Frank Brightson, his growth has been internal, uh, and that totally comes out in today's episode. A little bit more about Chef Frank Brightson. He is uh, a native of New Orleans. Uh, started cooking in college, uh, and he eventually decided that he wanted to do this full time and make this his career. And he did the right thing by going to get mentored by Chef Paul Burdome And man. The lessons we learned about Chef Paul Perdome and uh, what happened over there at Commander's Palace and K-Paul's, awesome stuff came out of today's episode. And then in 1986, Chef Frank Brightson opened his namesake restaurant, Brightson's Restaurant, and he's been there ever since. And uh, he's been making an impact on Creole cuisine and his community and the preservation. It's just the amazing things that came out of today's episode. You're in for a treat. Here they are. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, chef owner of Brightson's restaurant, Frank Brightson. Frank, are you feeling unstoppable I today? I do feel unstoppable. Yes, that's what I like to hear. So I cannot wait to dive into your career. You're like a legend here in New Orleans. And thank you to Paul, for Paul Tourneman to, for introducing the two of us. Uh, he called you out way back in 2000. Eighteen or nineteen, I think uh, I tried to come out here during the pandemic, but that was just crazy times we decided it would be best to postpone to, to make sure things settled down. We made it happen we 're here today, and there 's just been so many great things that people have said about you as far as what you 've done for this community and what you stand for and i you have no idea how excited I am to to, to make an example of you so before we Get into your story. Let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Let's do this thing. <laughs> yes. You have more energy than I do right now. I love that. What's your quote? Um, in cooking,
1: color is flavor, and brown is the color of flavor.
0: Mm, I love that. Um, why, why is that the quote you chose to bring to us today?
1: I think it's such an important part of Louisiana cooking to begin with, um, the way we utilize uh, Onion, celery, and bell pepper, mm. building foundations of flavor by browning those vegetables, awesome. and then it's why the crispy end of a roast beef tastes so darn good, yeah. because when you when you roast a protein or cook a protein like that, the protein converts to a natural glutamate, what we call umami, depth of flavor, mm-hmm. and that's what we seek in our cooking is depth of flavor. I
0: love it. And before we we started, you gave me another quote that I thought was really good about your mama. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, <laughs> which was that? I I think it was a it was a quote uh, you something the cooking for your mom. I think you were. saying. Oh that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, drop that one on us too, because that was gold.
1: Cool. Yeah, I, this is a mantra that I give to my chefs in the kitchen, particularly young ones starting out. Make every dish like you're making it for your mama. Mm, why is that? I learned that lesson when I was a young chef, uh, an apprentice cook, actually at uh, Commander's Palace in the 1870s with Chef Paul Prud- I mean, 1970s with Chef Paul Prudhomme. <laughs> uh, we had a staff meeting, and uh, one of the things he said that really hit home with me was you chefs are putting your hands on five, six, seven hundred plates a shift, mm-hmm. but the guest is only getting one of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you let one plate slide, that's not quite what it should be, you've done it injustice.
0: Yes awesome and it kind of reminds me uh chef evan uh hennessy from dover new hampshire mentioned you're whether you're cooking for one or for a hundred you do it the same every time and yes. i think when sometimes when it gets super busy you, you just you're, you're concerned about just getting it out right and right. Like the quality goes down but you got to cook it like every dish like it's for your mom you know i love that yeah i got another one for you go for it we always have time to do it right Yes, I love that. Great way to get this thing started. Uh, so, where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Well, I, my food career, <laughs> believe it or
1: not, I, I was just doing the math. This is my fiftieth year in food service. Wow!
0: Congratulations. Thank you.
1: I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I started in a sandwich shop uh, freshman year of college. Eighteen years old, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. seventeen actually. So. Um, You know, I I didn't go to culinary school. Uh, I went to LSU and I had chosen to study fine arts, uh, painting and printmaking, um, which was not a popular decision with my father. I can imagine. And um, so I had to go to work and uh, got a job in a sandwich shop. Uh, A friend was working there. And, you know,
0: it was. It was okay.
1: I liked it, and I was good at it, too.
0: <laughs> what, may, what, what, do you, what do you mean by good at? What, what part of it were you good at? Well,
1: this particular uh, operation was a sub shop, and uh, each and every sandwich was the meats and cheeses were sliced to order. Okay. So if you're working the slicing machine, you took the order and then went and got each individual meat and cheese and put together a unique custom sandwich. And um, they made me night manager after about two months. Wow. Yeah.
0: What reflecting back at that time, what was it about your your the way you showed up every day that made you progress so quickly?
1: Well, I I, I think you know in in the restaurant business and food service industry, um, anyone that enters into it, even dabbles in it in college, like a lot of people do, uh, you very quickly have to make a decision: do you want to be in the kitchen or on the floor? Mm-hmm. And um, in my next job. That's when I made my decision uh that I liked it in the back
0: better. So at this point in your career working at the sub shop progressing quickly are you thinking to yourself I could see myself doing this for the rest of my life was that is th- was that a possibility at this point?
1: Not at that stage. Um I continued to work full time uh through my years of college and eventually my schooling suffered naturally. And um but with fine arts at you know by year 4 I realized I don't really need a degree. And I'm probably not gonna make a living as an artist. And hey, I'm kinda of liking this restaurant thing. So when I moved back to New Orleans, I decided to pursue it.
0: So we, did you spend four years at this the same sub
1: shop? Five, no, 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 one year there, and then I went to another spot, a little pasta place. Um, I was a cook, and then again, uh, moved up to night manager. Um, and that's when I decided I liked the back, because I had to seat people and deal with customers and stuff. And I, I was just awkward for me.
0: Yeah. Get into that. Um, I think this is really important. I think it's important to kind of touch different parts of the, the, the restaurant to see what link yes. you belong in. So what was it about the back of house that resonated with you?
1: Well, I think you're in your own private space to, to begin with, you know, and up front, you know, greeting people at the door, seating them, um, which section you're going to put them in You really have to be pretty smooth and and think on your feet. And uh, at at that age, 18, 19, 20 years old, I was not that person. Um, And I I couldn't wait to get back into the kitchen. Uh, Some shifts I was up front, some in the kitchen. And uh, this was LSU. So the busiest days were obviously LSU football days. mm. And um, in this little kitchen... uh, One day, um, I rocked 700 covers with a helper. Wow. And we got a great big pat on the back from the owner, a manager. And uh, that sense of accomplishment, uh, and it was so smooth. That sense of accomplishment, I, I think really, although I didn't realize it at the time, is what we as chefs take away from our job each day. Mm. When you know you've crushed it and everything went well and you made people happy, you take that home with you.
0: Yes, I love it. I'm curious, what is it about the back of the house or what is it about you that excels in the back of the house?
1: Well, I think to be successful in a, in a kitchen, um, it's not about making you know one great meal. Um, It's about doing it hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of times. Uh, But it's what I call doing the dance. You know, it's an orchestrated operation where um, I call it Frank's three T's, taste, timing, and temperature. All of those things have to be on point for a dish and a service to be successful. So you... You have to, some people have an affinity for mechanics of motion, for instance. Mm -hmm. They're smooth in their motions. They know where this is and that is, and the muscle memory gets developed, and they're just dancing. And others have to work at that a little bit. And that's when I think there comes a time. I mean, I've had young chefs here uh, work a station for three months and say, okay, what's next? And I say, well, You've done that dish a hundred times. Ask me when you've done it a thousand times. Because you get good when you're not thinking anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just like a football player. Great college football star gets drafted in the NFL, a linebacker. And his first year he's struggling. He's making mistakes. He's getting beat. And as they'll tell you, he's thinking too much. It hasn't become natural yet. But with experience and repetition, that player will get better because he won't have to think so much. He'll be following his instincts and react naturally. And the problem with repetition is that it's boring, and some people don't uh, embrace that for what it really is. And in our jobs as chefs, uh, repetition is the deal. Um, Things change. Um, maybe staff changes, menu changes, specials are created, but it's the, the act of doing it over and over and over again that if that doesn't bring you joy,
0: um, change it up. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious from like a restaurant owner perspective and somebody who's leading a kitchen uh, at your level, uh, what is the benefit of getting a line cook to the point where they can be like you said instinctual and act without thinking. Why is that? Why is it so important to get them to that level before moving them on?
1: Well, uh, you know, in our kitchen, we're very big on cross training and um, you know, to to go back a little bit to the early st- starts of my career um, after moving back to New Orleans, I got a job as a prep cook and then that job ended I walked out. The only job I ever walked out on. They had a change in ownership, and it wasn't good. And at the same time, uh, I got evicted from my apartment. They sold the building. My car broke, and I broke up with my girlfriend.
0: Is this one one day, one week, one month?
1: Like within a week or two. Well, that's a tough week right there. (laughs) I was 24 years old and, and rudderless. I can imagine. So I had to make that phone call. Mom, can I come home? And so I went home and uh, 24 years old. And um, after two weeks of that, uh, uh, this has got to go. This has got to change. So uh, y'all are too young. After two weeks of being at home with your parents? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Not good. Um, Y'all are too young to remember this, but there used to be these things that would be dropped in our front lawns each morning. And it was made of paper. (laughs) And it had stories in it. It was called a newspaper. And in the back of the newspaper was something called the classifieds, where there was help wanted ads. So after those two weeks, I picked up the help wanted ads and there was an ad for Commander's Palace. And I remember the the word verbatim. It said, now hiring Creole chefs or people willing to learn Creole cuisine. And so that was me. I was ready to step up to a real restaurant. And Commander's was and still is one of the top restaurants in the world, much less New Orleans. And so I asked Mom to drive me down for an interview. And uh, this is 1978. And um, my interview was with then-executive chef Paul Perdome. And so we, there was a lot of people waiting to be interviewed. Um, the um, process was lengthy. Uh, we talked for about an hour. Wow. And, um, he said, okay, Frank, real good. Come back next week and we'll talk again. Mm. So I came back the second week and there was less people waiting to be interviewed. And we talked for another hour. Wow. And he said, great. Come back next week and we'll talk again. Oh man! So I came back the third week and there was only like five people. So they were calling and, uh, He said, Frank, we're going to give you a chance. And uh, he said, but you have a choice. We'll hire you as a broiler chef, and we'll pay you good money and expect a lot out of you. Or you can come on as an apprentice in the pantry, make minimum wage, but you can expect a lot out of me. And I said, that's it. That's what I want.
0: Mm, Why that?
1: I was not ready for the front line of commanders.
0: What do you think that showed him
1: um, a willingness to learn you know um, not not in it for the money, not overstating my qualifications um, I wanted that was my culinary school mm-hmm. at commander 's palace
0: mm-hmm. so many things are coming to my mind after eight hundred plus interviews of hearing good advice, and the things that are that were kind of under the radar and what you just share with us that come to mind are uh hire people who are willing to learn. Right. Right. You don't have to, you see all the time in job ads and like in, in, in this he said people with Creole experience or who are willing to learn. Right. right? You, you always see it. Experience required, experience required. Right. People aren't willing to teach anymore. And you have to remember that it's your job to give people these, like your job as That's an right. owner is to make them able. Right. That's exactly right. forget that. Um, <laughs> um. In
1: the early years of Brightson's, I happened to be walking in the hall during service and a customer came up to me and he said, no wonder my food is not on my table. (laughs) I'm like, okay. And eventually, I I would never say that to a guest, but but my answer to that is, and I do say this to my chefs uh, and others. If I have to cook the food for it to be good, that makes me a great cook and a lousy chef. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because chef means chief. Yes. And part a big part of our job is teaching and training. Mm-hmm. And now 50 years into my career and 35 years into Brightson's, my gratification and joy comes from giving people an opportunity like I got from Paul Perdon. Yes. Yeah.
0: And the, the other thing, that I picked up from that, that the one-liner from, from we picked up from Paul was hire slow, fire fast. Talk about hiring yeah. slow. Right. Three hours, yep. one-on-one, yep. to make sure you're a good fit. fit right? Who? How many people do that today? Three separate occasions. Yeah. Right?
1: That was, uh, you know, and I didn't realize, you know, the calling part of it and why it took three one-hour interviews. But he was trying to get to know me, like all of them. And, and in that third interview, Eric, he said, Frank, where do you see yourself in 10 years? What do you want out of life? And I uh, hemmed and hard a little bit and I said, I, I, I think one place, I'm, one day I'd like to have my own little place. So seven years later, <laughs> he and his late wife Kay pulled me out of the kitchen at Kay Paul's, sat me down and said, Frank, I remember what you said seven years ago about wanting your own place and we think
0: you're ready to go out on your own i'm loving this interview already you're like literally letting me <laughs> up inside because the third thing i wrote that i haven't shared yet is like you when you hire people that and i picked this up from saying like you have a choice i can put you on the line we can test you out or you can become an apprentice and this is what we're going to do for you yes and when, I, when i'm going with that is you you have to put people on paths of growth yes you absolutely you, they, they can't you can't just hire them and say work at the station you have to hire them and say this is where you are now And this is where you'll be if you apprentice. And this is where I can get you. That's right. And then even beyond that, what do you want from life? What's your goal? What's your vision? What's your mission for yourself? So I know exactly how I can serve you and help you get there. And people need to know where they're going. They need direction. They need to know that I'm growing professionally. And he seemed to know this all intuitively because this this stuff – Back in the 70s and 80s wasn't common knowledge, this type of leadership, this right. type of business knowledge. Where do you think he got this? Was this instinctual for him?
1: Well, you know, he was uh, a great man, obviously, but he was a self-made man. And, um, you know, when, when Paul got that job as executive chef at Commander's Palace, I remember seeing it on the front page of our newspaper. It was a big deal for Ella Brennan and Dick Brennan to hire a Cajun Boy, no culinary school experience to be the executive chef for the most prominent restaurant in in the city. And it was a bold move. And um, it it was the beginning of, I think, the beginning of um, bringing Creole cuisine back to its roots, uh, making it more local, concentrated on local products, local flavors, local techniques. It was a
0: bold move. So ahead of the curve, too. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, I can't believe we're already 20 minutes into this conversation. We're still talking about uh, your first, like, uh, I don't know, not your first job in the industry, but your first, like, serious role. Is that safe to say?
1: No, that's true. And, and, um, you know, as it happened, um, as I mentioned, Commander's Palace was my culinary education. I was only there six months and in six months, I worked every station in the house. And the lesson for me and for anyone else listening right now, the great, one of the great things about our industry is that it's about performance and opportunity. You know, I, I tell, I teach, you know, and we'll talk about that too. But I tell culinary students when they graduate, don't go looking for a sous chef's job. Why is that? Don't go for a title. The best sous chefs are not hired off the street, they're hired from within. Yes. Promoted from within. Don't go for the title. The main thing is find the happy kitchen
0: and the chef that you want to learn from. Yes. And get your foot in the door. Yes. Go so what I'm hearing from you is go for the knowledge, go for the experience, go right. for the, the network. Right. The the people you can associate your name with. Right. And go for where you can grow. Get right. get
1: an opportunity, and perform, and prove yourself, and and your sous chef will, title will come. Um, those things are earned, you know. I mean, just like you know, a lot of us chefs, well, probably shouldn't go there, but you don't become a chef by putting on a white jacket, yeah, and calling yourself one. <laughs> it's earned Absolutely. so anyway my six months I worked every station and, and it all started I'm in the pantry and uh, of course Sunday jazz brunch is a big thing at Commander's and we do seven, eight hundred covers so I'm in the pantry by myself um, prepping six flats of strawberries we open at 11 and about 10, 10 15, the front line chefs are saying hey Frank you know how to make an omelet I'm like no every 10 minutes hey Frank you know what to make an omelet? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, the, the the sous chef had changed the schedule, and the two backline saute chefs didn't show up for work. They didn't see the new schedule. Oh. So at ten minutes to eleven, hey Frank, <laughs> you're on saute. <laughs> okay. And that's how I learned to shake a skillet. You know, um, trial under fire. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I did okay, you know. They kept me on that station on, for the jazz brunches on Saturday and Sunday, and uh, about a month into it, I, I realized, hey, this, this was a two-man station. Why, why am I here by myself? So, performance and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Another day, uh, the next movement was uh, I was uh, working pantry, and hot apps are next to me. And the sous chef came over to talk to the chef working that station, John. He said, John, have you been drinking? And John said, yeah, I had a couple of beers. The sous chef said, go home. Frank, you're on hot apps. Boom. So another station.
0: Yeah, patience, opportunity, like performance, earn yeah. it, right? Like, Yeah. There, you, sometimes, I think people today especially want to grow faster than they expect it's almost like an entitlement. And I hate to say that and make that assumption, but they forget that it comes with, like you said, uh, performance and opportunity, but mostly patience and persistence. Right. I totally agree.
1: And and, and I think the important thing for all of us to remember every culinarian is that we are in food service industry Mm -hmm. service.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: You don't work in a kitchen to become a celebrity. Mm -hmm. You're there to serve. You're there to work with your colleagues and and together orchestrate a great service and make people happy. And anything else that comes your way is gravy. Mm -hmm. I have never, 36 years almost uh, here at Brightson's, I've never had an agent, a PR person, personal assistant. Maybe I'm dumb, but I haven't.
0: You know, but you, you also fill me up when you say that because I reflect on my own life and what I've been doing this now only nine years, which is only para- pales in comparison to how long you've been at what, your profession, your craft. But at the same time, I think to myself, like, I should be doing more social media. I should be doing more to promote myself. But that takes time and energy. And I think I forget that. And I rather put my time and energy into doing the thing that I do better and then focusing on my craft, focusing on my skill as, as an interviewer and then letting that pull opportunity that right. sounds like that's the same approach you've taken It, it is. it makes me feel like i'm I'll, i you can get <laughs> distracted by that self that stuff sometimes
1: right and i and I, well like when we opened here um you know paul and Kay helped me they lent me money and a real estate agent an attorney allowed me to take my sister's-in-law from k paul's and people got wind of it and were asking me frank what kind of restaurant is it going to be And I I didn't know how to verbalize my answer. All I could think was, I just want a good New Orleans restaurant. I knew what that meant. And anybody that grew up here knows what that means. But, you know, I wasn't going to put a label or anything like that on it. I just wanted to get in there and cook. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the transition from being a chef to owner chef is huge uh, for anybody out there that's considering it. Um, it is two jobs.
0: Let's let's <laughs> let's put that on the back burner. The transition. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really great conversation. But I'm curious. You spent about a year at Commanders Palace before going over to K Paul. Six months at six Commanders, months. and okay. then
1: six. And a half years at K. Paul's.
0: Um, We've already learned so much from Chef Paul and what he he taught you and his values have just come out naturally in this conversation. But how did he transform you as a professional? Who were you before then? And who were you coming out of K. Paul's? Like, What did he instill in you as far as what it takes to be successful in business?
1: Well, I I think the most um, prominent thing about working for Paul was... For him, nothing was impossible. Mm. Nothing. I mean, he got asked to do so many things, and we, we did them all. Um, I mean, from, you know, President Reagan wants us to cook at the economic summit with the world leaders. Okay, let's bring the whole staff and 60 boxes of food on the airplane. Here we go. Um, Let's open K Paul's in San Francisco for a month. We shut down K Paul's here and all went to San Francisco for a month and opened a restaurant. Yeah. The first pop up, <laughs> yeah. if you would. Um, one guy called him, a uh, wealthy oilman um, uh, from Shreveport, northern Louisiana, called him one day and said, uh, Chef Paul, I want to hire you to come cook at my country club. Um, And Chef quoted him an outlandish price. And the guy said, "Okay." So after Friday night service, we were open Monday through Friday. After Friday night service, we all got on a bus and drove through the night to Shreveport. The next day
0: through a party. Nothing was impossible. There is some science involved in this idea of nothing is impossible. Yes. And especially with how our brains work, that our brains are giant energy sucks. They they suck energy. And to save and conserve energy, we will try to find the path of least resistance. So if we tell ourselves something isn't possible, we'll believe that and our frontal lobe specifically will shut off. But if you say anything's possible, how do I do this? Or if you say that nothing is impossible, it forces that frontal lobe into hyperdrive. And you start getting creative. You tap into the ether, right? The, yes. Like the, 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 anything's possible. If you just brainstorm, you, you ask yourself how. And especially if you have a team of people you're surrounded yourself with, you can tap into all those brains. And you, you, you make everybody think how. And then all of a sudden, what was impossible is no longer impossible. Exactly. Super powerful. I
1: mean, you know, we did a lot of hard things. We worked hard, hard, you know. Okay, Frank, we're going to L.A. this weekend. Okay, yes, chef. (laughs) You know, whatever it might be. Um, But those memories and experiences were so invaluable. Um, You know, Paul not only taught me how to cook, he taught me how to be a man. And, you know, and all that that implies, you know. I made mistakes, and he would give me another chance. He would let me know I made a mistake, but, you know, and here's, here's the greatest lesson. This is one little snapshot from my career at K-Paul's. One of the things I say, Eric, is food is our medium, but it's a people business. Mm. From the suppliers, to the staff, to the guests. All these relationships have to work to, to get a plate of food to your guests and be successful. So, in the early years of K. Paul's, um, when we got really busy, uh, <laughs> there was no dishwashing machine in our kitchen. Everything was washed by hand, from pots and pans to glasses and silverware. And it was uh, a really difficult job. And so, this was a busy Friday night, first turn. We had just opened the doors, filled up, tickets f- all over the board. And Johnny, our new dishwasher, was not keeping up well at all. I couldn't get enough skillets to cook with. Uh, Stuff was all over the floor. I mean, just backed up in the weeds. And uh, I had it. Um, I went out to Chef's table. His office was the rear table uh, at K. Paul's. And I have one of those, too. I saw that. Yeah. Um, And I said, Chef, we got to get rid of Johnny. He's just not cutting it. Now, this is the middle, as busy as a restaurant could be. And he said, Frank, sit down. So I sat down. He said, Frank, I have never seen you this mad. I know it's bad if this is how you are. He said, let me ask you a question. Is Johnny giving 100%? Is he trying his best? And I thought a moment. And I said, yep, he is trying his best. He said, Paul said, well, I can't fire him. Wow. And John and I went to work together for about three more years and became great friends and got through it all. Yeah. And so now that I'm an owner, um, hiring, working with you know, a diverse group of people, that lesson has helped me be successful paraphrase, for 36 years.
0: Paraphrase that lesson, distill that lesson crystallize it
1: if somebody's doing their very best for you you have to give them a chance Mm. everybody has different skills talents abilities the beauty of life is in its diversity that's the lesson
0: yes and you you said he taught me how to be a man in in the essence is this what it means to be a man
1: exactly how to embrace diversity not hate it Mm -hmm. I mean start with food we all have palates that crave diversity. We don't want to eat the same thing every day. The beauty of food is in its diversity. And we live on this planet Earth filled with diversity. Fish, seafood, meats, plants, nuts, grains, grapes. It's one of life's great joys. Yeah. Now apply that same principle and philosophy to people. hmm if everybody was like me, it'd be a horrible place. Yeah,
0: I mean, be, I mean, the thoughts that come to mind as you're saying this is we're tribal and we yes. we exist to be and to function best in groups of fifty, and that group of that collective of fifty people all bring something unique to the tribe. It takes a tribe, you know. Absolutely. And, and with one person in in the in like the you go you go back twelve thousand fifteen thousand years ago, you take one person, you throw him into the wild. Not going to survive. They right. need the tribe because everybody has a special skill, and together that tribe, and your kitchen's a tribe. Together, yep. everybody has their land. They have their strength. You, that 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 tribe is your restaurant. You bring you surround yourself with these people. The diversity to be yes. you know, a holistic solution. The, the you need that diversity. You can't do it by yourself. No, and, and, and
1: Brighton's is really a, truly a great example of that. You know, and starting with, you know, my wife Marner and her two sisters Sandy and Rhonda that work here. Uh, all these years, uh, Sandy and Rhonda, Sandy was the first waitress at Cape Paul's, and I was the first night chef. That's why we're all here right now. Um, so the four of us run the restaurant, in addition to Chef Larry, um, who's been with me 29 years now. Um, so we each have our
0: strengths yeah. and weaknesses. I think this is a perfect time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And I want to start talking about how you guys got together to execute Brightson's. This episode is brought to you by the Agio Bar Academy.com, a free online resource for hospitality professionals, offering resources for bartenders at all Levels And this February 2022 is Diageo Bar Academy's 10-year anniversary. Congratulations. And over the past 10 years, Diageo Bar Academy has built a global community fueled by education and inspiration. During this time, over 120 million bar professionals across 178 countries has joined Diageo Bar Academy in physical and virtual training sessions. Whether you are a bartender, barback, or manager, or even if you're completely new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy-to-access resources to help you learn new skills or stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Speaking of trends, make sure you head over to DiageoBarAcademy.com to check out the top trends for 2022 and beyond, inspiration for seasonal recipes in low-slash-no-ABV serves, which is pretty popular right now now. Thousands of recipes for all styles of cocktails, e-learning, and master classes available on demand in weekly newsletters, so you are always in the know. Diageo Bar Academy provides everything you need to improve your career in the industry, diverse content featuring experts from around the globe, member-only exclusive content and events, in. ABV calculators, large format cocktails, and profit calculators to boot. There's so many tools for you. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why? Wait. Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O. Baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's completely free, and you'll be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O, BarAcademy.com. So we're back, and you were just finished telling us about how uh, your mentor, Paul, really just kind of helped form and transform you into the man you needed to be to open your restaurant, Brightson's. Uh, You're also saying that these people that you were working with, you were finding your own tribe, you're building your own tribe, and you're you're, you're surrounding yourself with people who complement you during this time. Uh, so take it from there, and like take us through the process of opening your first restaurant.
1: Well, uh, as it happened, one of our servers at Cape Paul's had just gotten her real estate license, so uh, Marsha drove me around, looked at a couple of properties, and you know nothing I was interested in. And after about three or four times doing that, she called in a professional who had been in the business for longer. And um, she started taking me around. And, uh, you know, I, I nixed this one, nixed that one. And she said, Frank, what do you want? And, of course, I gave that stupid answer. I'll tell you when I see it. <laughs> so It'll talk to <laughs> me. <laughs> so this agent, May Kwon, who who's still my agent, um, she knew... Uh, the owner of the previous restaurant here on Dante Street and knew that she wanted to sell and get out, but it wasn't on the market. So she talked to her, and she was open to the idea of me coming to take a look. And I opened the front door on this building, and before I walked in, I knew it was the place I wanted. Just that quick. Um, It felt like New Orleans. I loved the neighborhood, um, I wanted to get out of the French quarter. Uh, I love the neighborhood because it's, um, kind of peaceful here in the river bend, but still accessible from everywhere in the city. Um, you know, and I knew that I needed, uh, a combination of visitors and locals, but it was also the size of the restaurant. Seats, seats about 60, uh, something I could manage. And, uh, So um, we agreed that we would try and work it out. And um, Paul uh, called the owner of the property, uh, who's a prominent New Orleanian, and uh, Paul negotiated my lease.
0: How awesome is this, by the way? (laughs) And I think you look at, like, you hear these horror stories of owners today who straight up resent their team when they want to go on and do other things. Right. Right. But the, the, the attitude of the most successful restaurant tours is I'm trying to push you out. My job isn't to keep you here as long as possible to serve myself. My job is to serve you and to make sure you get what you need and do anything you can to get rid of your best people. But what happens as, as a result of that when you, when you take this, this mindset, well, it, it's, it's, it's just remarkable. Right? Yeah,
1: it's remarkable. Um, Paul and Kay wanted this restaurant, at least if not more than I did. I mean, I, when he proposed it to me, I, I said what I always say, yes, chef, yeah. okay. yeah. <laughs> so Paul negotiated a beautiful lease, uh, structured quite the right way, and, and uh, I think if we get to the point of talking business and stuff, and yeah. how to be successful, it starts with a lease. Um, and so the deal was reached. Uh, we signed the lease
0: um, and we opened five days later <laughs> oh, man. And I, side note if you guys have not caught the episode it, it either just went live last week or it's going live it's going live this week I think it's literally uh, an interview I did with David Hellbron, um from Halbron Hellbr- and Levy uh, an attorney out of New York City, like a leading hospitality attorney, all about how to negotiate a lease, yeah, so perfect timing you're really queuing that episode up really well, um, but you you kind of just dropped a bunch of stuff on us on location. You said that it was peaceful, you said it was accessible, you said it, the location was right because you could attract locals and visitors, and the size was right because it's manageable, and I think that last part's really important. People overextend themselves way too often early in their career the size not only is it does it become unmanageable with just physically being able to manage the moving parts but also too expensive can be an issue right yes. if, if you haven't if you go too big too soon you overextend yourself you can't keep the butts in seats or you can't fill all the seats right you're gonna be in it you're gonna have trouble right so what's going through your mind as i'm sharing well uh,
1: keep in mind this was 1986 yeah so In New Orleans, anyway, um, well, we've always been a place of family-owned independent restaurants. New Orleans has always been like that. But in the mid-'80s, this was a time when uh, chef-owned bistro-sized restaurants started to pop up here and there. And that was a novelty uh, in a way because the chefs themselves were becoming the owners, Um, that was new. Um, So, uh, you know, I I didn't come in here with a business plan. You know, I I had to draw one up for the bank and and I had my accountant help me do that. Bank turned me down. Um, But Paul believed in me. Kay believed in me. And 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 I felt probably the way they felt was if we can just give Frank enough support and let him do his thing, he'll be successful. Were they investors? Did they have stake. Like were they stakeholders? It it cost um, one hundred and twenty thousand dollars for me to buy the business from the previous tenant. Okay, so one hundred twenty thousand dollars, and it came from Paul
0: and Kay's pocket. But was there interest? No wow no 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 because i was i was curious if, if you came into this originally as an operating like as a partner and that they were investing in you but i don't think there's anything wrong with that either no no being somebody who invests in their team like in like creating creating opportunity like, it's it's all about you're, you're farming people you're growing people right right there's nothing wrong with i think investing in your people right and getting a return but i'm surprised that he, he didn't even want that he no. just wanted there to was
1: support. no uh legal uh business or financial agreement nothing on paper uh, a promissory note mm-hmm. was all there was and you know as we got open and, and started if if I was in uh, the accountant was Paul's accountant mm-hmm. so if I need money to pay bills we, we, we talk weekly you know I, can I get you know 1600 can I get 2500 so there was some more borrowing yeah. operational um, and uh, let's see we opened in March. Uh, that June, uh, a few months later, uh, we got a glorious review in the newspaper. Um, the The writer at that time, uh, Mr. Gene Borg, a wonderful guy, uh, he didn't give stars as ratings. He gave red beans because it's New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So we got five beans. So um, we got wind of it, a friend at the paper called it, Called us the night before it came out and told us. So I went down to the newspaper building, and, and like at midnight, or 11.30, 12 o'clock at night, and bought advanced copies and brought them back here. And so we would second line around the restaurant drinking champagne, celebrating, had our umbrellas, <laughs> having a ball, which is a mistake. Why? Because the next morning, the phone was ringing off the hook, <laughs> and everybody's hung over. <laughs> that review just opened it wide open. Um, we were successful.
0: I love it. Uh, before we start moving on and talk about the evolution and how you guys grew internally, uh, I, I'm curious. You said the size needs to be manageable. What is that size? What, what, what is a manageable first restaurant in your opinion?
1: Well, yeah, and keep it in mind, um, I have no business background. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I guess it's a matter of risk. Um, But, you know, K Paul's had 55 seats, Mm -hmm. Brightson's had 60. So this was a number. You know, I can do a turn of 50 people. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the beginning, the first, actually, the first 12 years we were open, I had one six burner stove. Wow. And I did all the cooking myself. First year. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: What happens if you're sick? Were you sick at all during that time?
1: Yeah, I'm sure I was. Um, I remember the first night I took off. My sous chef came with me from K Paul's. Okay. He became my sous chef. Yeah. He was a he was a working. There was no horse. remorse
0: there either that you, you you left with a bunch of his I asked complaint. him. I said, Can I
1: take Steve with me? He, said, you also, you had, he uh, said yes. Sandy and Rhonda. Sandy and then Rhonda came too. Yeah. Uh and Sandy and Kate were best friends. Yeah. Um so you know, we've been open for a while and Steve's a good chef, good cook, and I decided to voluntarily take a night off. And, which was hard mm-hmm. and um guess what happened
0: got slammed he
1: set off the fire extinguisher oh. system <laughs> <laughs> oh man yep somewhere there's a polaroid picture of the whole kitchen covered in that white foam oh, the restaurant goodness. shut down oh, and it man. was a long time before i took off again
0: bet <laughs> how long i'm curious
1: oh months 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 yeah um but, you know, it, the evolution, it, it started from me doing all the service cooking and, and sous chef doing the pot cooking. And I, I didn't have recipes. And, and you know, a lot of it, a lot of the food I did was definitely derivative of K-Paul's. That's where I learned. Um, and, and Creole and Cajun food is my thing. So over time... Uh, I started to write recipes, although I didn't like it. But if you got invited to be on a TV show, like the local news show, come to a segment, oh, yeah, sure, and bring your recipe. I really? Okay. <laughs> so you spend two days writing the recipe, and people would write in for it in the old days. Uh, so eventually I, I, I embraced recipes as teaching So they would write
0: into you, or they'd write into the media? To the station. So they're, they're taking a recipe to build their list. Yeah, yeah, exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly. Smooth. <laughs> but, but eventually I adapted myself to the, the value of recipes because if I could have a working recipe and hand yeah. it to my sous chef or any of my chefs, I don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. And I know it's going to be the way I want it.
0: Yes, let's that's, that's the beauty of it. Let's shelf that cuz that's huge and that's that's the evolution transitioning from a chef to an owner. Uh to something you mentioned earlier which I really want to get into. Uh but before we get into that, I really want to kind of paint the picture of surrounding yourself with your tribe. I want to talk about the roles, the lanes that Sandy and Rana were were in. Uh you you pulled them you also had your sous chef. So, what was your strategy? What are you thinking? Like what are you you're thinking to yourself, "I'm the chef, I'm the back of the house. I don't know fill in the blank."
1: Right. So, what I had to learn uh, was to take care of business during the daytime. All these salesmen coming to see me, in particular, drop in salesmen of every imaginable product. Um, and particularly after that review, you know, when we got on people's radar, excuse me, I- and we were bombarded. Uh, I was bombarded uh, by people wanting my time. And I couldn't wait for 5.30 so that I could shut all that off and get on the stove and do my thing. So I did not like the business part of it in the beginning. Um, fortunately, uh, our accountant, who was Chef Paul's accountant, Bo Parent, uh, was brilliant and brilliant. Um, He did very detailed uh, monthly financial statements that weren't just P&L statements, but statistical history. Mm. How many covers, check average, you know, the whole, every possible number that could tell the story. And he taught me what's important.
0: He was Restaurant 365 before you. Absolutely he was. (laughs) And
1: other accounts would say, Bo is a dinosaur. That software he uses is antiquated. (laughs) But it was so informative. And. In a matter of probably three years, I began to love the business part of
0: it. Why? What happened? What changed?
1: Well, I could see how the engine drives the train. Mm. You know, uh, I'm I'm not in the dining car. I'm not in the galley. I can also be up in the engine and seeing what I need to do to keep this thing rolling, um, which – Avenues of marketing, because back then it was print advertising mostly, um, newspapers and magazines, uh, to push the bottom line.
0: Yeah. I think you're again getting into the evolution, the transition from chef to owner. But, yeah. But back to the the lanes, the people you were surrounding yourself with. So you had you're alluding to the fact that you had the accountant, the, the business analytic person. Yeah. That that wasn't you. And that was your your mentor, your coach who, who gave you that information. What what roles were Sandy and Rhonda filling?
1: Well, uh they were front of the house. Okay. And um Marna, bless her heart, my wife, um this was her first restaurant job, yeah. owner. Mm-hmm. She was a court reporter. Was she your wife when you opened? Yes. Okay, so you met at K Paul's? Yes. Okay. She, um, the three sisters are from North Dakota. Uh, Sandy came to New Orleans for Mardi Gras one year, fell in love, started coming all the time, met Kay. They worked in a bar in Bourbon Street together. And then when, when K Paul's opened, Kay asked Sandy to come work with her. And then Rhonda that was living in San Francisco, she came to visit. She got enticed to come work at K Paul's as a bartender. She was in the business. And Marna just came to visit one Christmas and we fell in love. Ah. And um happened quickly. You know? So Sandy and Rhonda are sisters and Marna are all sisters. All of them. Yeah. Family business. Yeah. Yeah. And so Rhonda had, you know, like some management and bartending experience. Sandy was, is the greatest waitress to ever live. We call her the Queen of Fluff. Sandy, that table needs some fluffing. She can
0: do it. <laughs> and she's still our spiritual cheerleader. Maybe if I see her before I leave, I can ask her to give us some fluffing tips. Yeah.
1: <laughs> she might. No, not today.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> um,
1: but, uh, yeah, she's still the Queen of Fluff. I, I mean, it. all these Mardi Gras decorations you see in the yeah. restaurant right now, that's all Sandy. Okay. Now
0: she's seventy-seven years old. Wow, and she's still our cheerleader. I love that. I love that. Um, okay, so you're, you I can, I can tell you're chomping at the bit to talk about the evolution of a chef, and I, this is really important, a chef to, sh- to owner. You talked about recipes. You talked about seeing how the engine drives the train. What's the translation there? What do you mean by the engine drives the train?
1: Well, um, for instance, the number. Uh, in, in our statistical history that uh, I learned from Bo, the, the number that made the biggest impact was covers per open night. So um, one of the biggest things we did that was hugely successful, uh, typically in New Orleans, summertime is slow. There's not a lot of visitors. So it can be dreadfully slow in the summer. So one summer, um, I called Paul. I called him on the phone. I said, Jeff, you know, it's so slow, and, and we particularly can't get anybody to come early. He said, give him a free appetizer from 5.30 to 6.30. So we tried that, and it was working a little bit. And um, that led to an idea I had to do what became known as an early evening special. So from five thirty to six thirty, um and this is, I don't wanna date this too much, but it was three courses for twelve ninety five. What was it called the early what early special? evening special. Mm-hmm. So if you come to Brightson's from five thirty to six thirty, you can get a three course menu for twelve ninety five. So you know, our check average at that time was probably twenty eight. Wow. That's huge. And over time, We'd have a full house on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, five thirty, six thirty.
0: So a lot of people would push back on this and say, you, you can't give away too much. You that's can't exactly
1: discount. what Chef said.
0: Okay. I can't sell my food for that money.
1: I said, well, if you don't get people in the door, you're not going to be serving food at any price for very long. And that's the thing. Because what what – what we realized was, um, I mean, you have to be cost conscious, of course. But it's what Bo called revenue contribution.
0: Revenue What does that mean?
1: That means instead of taking in 10000 a week, you're taking in 13000 a week. So there's 30% more cash in the bank than you had before. Wait, say that one more time? Revenue contribution. Yeah. So if your normal week is $10,000, yeah. but the early even special bumps it up to 13000
0: Okay. that's 30% more revenue. Total revenue. Yeah, total revenue. Yeah. Top of the line. But profit is different because you're not making the same margins. True.
1: But there's a balance there. There's a uh, uh, And it's literally a balancing act. I mean, we served a lot of chicken, <laughs> you know, it,
0: it was. You have to be extremely cost-conscious. You're not conscious. giving anything away. You're selecting which right. entrees you yeah. get. Yeah,
1: I mean, maybe instead of running thirty-two percent food cost on that menu, maybe you're running thirty-eight or forty. Yeah, but your staff's making tips. Mm-hmm. Cust- what we realized was the intangible benefit. People walk in at. 5:30, 5:45 and the place is bustling.
0: Yeah, what's that look like from outside? People driving by, yeah. right? And they're like,
1: "Man, so, I yeah. love
0: this place." So, I think what I've heard in perspectives on this is you are not look that's not a loss. That's an investment. That's a marketing expense. Yes. You have to look at it as a marketing expense. And today, the evolution of that, I would say, is you're giving you're not giving food away, you're trading it for contact information. Exactly. Because now we have all these tools and services to capture the data, right? Good point. So you're saying, okay, I'm going to give you a discount, but in exchange, you're going to give me your email and your phone number when you make the reservation, and I'm going to segment you to a specific list and market you to create a long-term relationship. Exactly. And That's you've exactly right. you got to look at it that way. you're building oh, your Oh, and list. they'll come back on a Saturday night, too. Yeah. And I mean, they'll buy wine and all that stuff, too. And you can't let the discount be the draw, that I mean, it is the draw, but it, but they're after the draw is the experience that they had. Exactly, they, they had it. That's right?
1: the seed you're planting.
0: The best marketing is food in malls. Yes. Yeah.
1: And from our perspective, the staff's perspective, um, it was extremely healthy because instead of standing around from five thirty to seven o'clock, an hour and a half with no tickets. Mm-hmm. We crank it up in the beginning. yeah. So the kitchen's in the groove. This, the servers are
0: making tips. You know, it just keeps the whole train yeah. moving. So the go full circle, you started this with saying covers, uh, covers per night is the metric. So you're getting a whole new round of, of seatings, so a third round. Or if, what, how many rounds typically, four? Exactly. Yeah. So that would be two full seatings instead of one. Got it. Got it. Um, you talked about recipes and you realized that having to draft this recipe for this me- media outlet was the first time you actually cemented it and put it in writing. But I mean, a recipe in itself is like the most basic system, right? It's a process. It's yes. a step-by-step process. I mean, businesses have recipes beyond the food. Like, yes, here's here's the opening recipe. Here's the 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 closing recipe. I'm talking about like checklists. Right. Yes. And that was the first checklist that you had to write. And you noticed from that first experience that by writing it down, what happened? It
1: became a teaching tool. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is as painful as it seemed to me in the beginning, once you got it, you got it. Mm mm-hmm. You know, Chef Larry and I still make jokes. We break out a dish we haven't done in three years. Hey, this recipe still works. I said, yeah. <laughs> <It didn't> break. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, eventually, you know, I compiled a little repertoire of recipes. And um, now today, all, each one of my chefs has their own binder in the kitchen with a recipe for every dish they make. And the binders grow. The longer you're here, the bigger your binder gets. And so, you know, writing a recipe is, to me anyway, not something to be taken lightly. I mean, yes, there's measuring, there's timing, there's temperature. But the method, how can you describe everything you do in the most understandable way? Um, Good recipes work, uh, and they work consistently. And and I get that comment a lot, and I think that's, you know, very gratifying.
0: So... Is it hard to believe that we're already an hour into this conversation. It goes so fast. And the year in your timeline is still like 1989. We've got, we got a lot of time to cover. we still got so much to talk about. Um, so t- take me through, take a few steps back. I like to say, let's get in the airplane. Let's zoom up to 30,000 feet. Uh, and reflecting back over the evolution of Brightson's, what were like, the, the pivotal points that, that, you know, I think right now you're probably, as an owner, you're in second or third gear right? Yes. And this is a six gear car. Yes. If current time today is six gear, how did you shift those gears?
1: Well, you know, as human beings, um, we don't always embrace radical changes in our lives. Um, a lot of changes that happen uh, to us as individuals and as societies are due to circumstances or events that, um, Many of them are bad. And so the one I want to talk about is Hurricane Katrina. Mm. Um, You know, I'm born and raised here in New Orleans, uh, fourth generation. And um, Katrina, you know, changed all of us. Um, And we were very lucky. You know, we didn't suffer severe damage at home or the business, um, but it uprooted our lives uh, for a long time. Um, We were closed for four months. Wow. Uh, everything you take for granted is gone um, and gradually came back now we could do another two hours on that but but here's the crux of it as bad as Katrina was I'm glad I went through it okay why because it made me a better person some silver lining here it gives you perspective mm. in adversity the human spirit rises. And that's what everyone here did. Um, and and there's opportunity. And so I had a turning point in my soul um, in those months of recovery. And I felt a need What happened to the restaurant landscape here was interesting. And it starts with the population. The demographics of the city changed. Thousands of people left and never came back. Did you know 90% of our doctors moved away? Wow. 90%. Wow. Wow. So Oxner, a local wonderful healthcare facility, hospital, they started recruiting and they brought in people from around the world to fill this vacuum. So the the diversity of New Orleans population uh, just grew. I mean, people from all over now are here bringing their palates, And so it was reflected in, as restaurants began to reopen after Katrina, new restaurants, um, different restaurants. I mean, we've always had a diverse culture here. Uh, we've always had uh, Vietnamese population here who came after their radical change the Mm -hmm. vietnam war um you know central american nicaraguan honduran people here um and and so now it's even more diversified and and the restaurants they were opening uh (laughs) as a kind of a uh oh crusty new orleanian you know i would i would joke and say it's easier to find a taco now than it is to find a po' boy. (laughs) Um, but what i felt was that um, you know, I've been this gift, been given this gift of, uh, doing Creole cuisine, uh, for my livelihood and it's time for me to stand up and protect and preserve it. Mm. I don't want it to go away. And that, that was a conversation a lot of us had. We don't want to lose our new Orleans culture. Um, and so I made a phone call to a friend of mine, Randy Sheramy. Uh, who's a professor uh, at the John Fos Culinary Institute, Nichols State University in Thibodeau, about an hour and a half from here. And I said, Randy, I want to come teach. You got a job for me? Can you make a spot for me? He said, of course, Frank, of course. We need somebody to do classic French. We need, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a job. I want to teach my stuff, our stuff. I want to ensure the best I can that we remember the vitality and wonderful nature of Creole and Cajun cuisine. So they created a course for me called Contemporary Creole Cajun Cuisine.
0: I mean, you're lighting me up right now, uh, and I can't help but like, reflect on the core values that I've put together because of all these lessons I've learned. And in order, it's integrity, which I feel like Paul represented that. Yes. Right? And that's what he instilled in you. Then you're a student first. So we have integrity. We are students. It's that process of learning, doing it a 1,000 times, 10,000 times. Yeah. Right? And then we are educators. It's not enough to just to learn. You have to pay it forward. You have to take the torch. And we're all, We are all, all here because we, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Right? Yes, we are where no we are because of the people that came before us and we have to pay it for it and that's the only way we're going to get better. Yep. Right? I mean, when is-
1: I when I put this white jacket on every day, which I did a couple of hours ago, I put on 300 years of Creole history. Wow. In my generation, Eric, I, I didn't know anybody that was in culinary school. Mm-hmm. My best friend went to the CIA. I said, "What?" He said, it's "Culinary school." I said, oh, wow. I never heard of it. Um, I learned my trade like most people before me did in the kitchens of New Orleans restaurants from the best Creole chefs you've never heard of, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Leroy Thomas at Commandus taught me so much, uh, Stanley Jackson, and these are guys that and gals that just grew up in the business. Yeah, their cement- uncle worked
0: here, so they got a job as a dishwasher. Things yeah. like that. You're cementing their legacy. You're paying it forward. Yes. You're, you're passing the torch. You have to do that.
1: I am a part of a continuum. Mm-hmm. I'm a cog in a wheel. And that's why I went to teach at Nickel State, and I still teach there.
0: Yeah. So this all started with you saying um, with the Katrina, and that was 2006, correct? Yes. So this is 2005. Also- 2005. But this is also a very unique time in in uh, human existence anyway because it's around this time, 2007 specifically, right off the heels of Katrina, that the the smartphone starts coming into play. And uh, there's a lot of people that believe that that's what really transformed food across the country or at least diversified food across the country. More exposure. Because now you in Louisiana are seeing what's happening in California. So you're seeing what's happening in New York. You're seeing what's happening on the other side of the planet, in in Asia, in in Europe. So now we have this Window, peering into every kitchen. And this happened overnight. Yes. Right. So now you, you, you there's food and knowledge is tra- being transferred transferred faster than ever. So you just to which I think is it's interesting because it created diversity and like now every city has a, a food scene. Right. right. And, uh, but at the same time, it kind of threatened uh, cities, culture and like tradition. Right, and that's kind of what I'm hearing from you and you want to make right. sure that you set that in stone.
1: Right. The, the regional nature of, of us and that's, that's what Paul was all about. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right and I think Food Channel falls in the same way. I mean they open doors and open eyes to the diversity of, of different um, cuisines and, and cultures from around the world. Um, and smartphones, you know, you know, I grew up watching the Jetsons and, uh, when computers, yeah, like. <laughs> when desktop computers came out, I'm like, yeah, one day we're going to be walking around with one on our hand. We're the hover cars. And, and now we are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, after, during the recovery of Katrina, um, our phone system was broken. Okay. Uh, our area code was crushed. Mm. I couldn't call you if you were sitting right there. Wow. I couldn't call my insurance agent. I talked to a person in Chicago. But we learned how to text, you know, for the first time because mm-hmm. it was the only way to contact people. So, yeah, it was a, um, a metamorphosis. Um, and that is part of the reason I went to Nichols, too, because, you know, a lot of the students there are from Louisiana and surrounding states. And they grew up with crawfish, etouffee, and gumbo. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, they didn't grow up eating McDonald's. They grew up eating sushi. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they want to make sushi. They want to do this. They want to do that. And that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I love that. But before you leave my class, you're going to learn how to make perfect rice (laughs) and a brown roux in five minutes. Yeah. And I still do that.
0: I love it. So when you said uh, in adversity, the human spirit rises, what was rising in you? Paraphrase that
1: well it it you know once Brightson's became successful, um, there were opportunities you know um and we thought about some of them, you know oh let's get a bigger place let's get a Katrina at this point or post both okay. both um because by Katrina, we had been open nineteen years, yeah, so you know I was offered a, a restaurant downtown um you know, we, I took a look at it, uh, a bigger place. Well, I took a look at it and we turned them all down Why? because
0: this is our happy
1: place. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm not a multi-unit kind of guy.
0: I was curious about that. Like, i honestly, we we're talking about this on the way here. I was like, been open since 1989, one location. I was like, how deep are we going to go into that? Like, there's going to be so right. much to talk about. And, but there's, the conversation is rolling, my friend. Like Thank there's you. no shorter things to talk about. Um, and I mean, and what you're, what's triggering inside of me is this idea of growth. And right. I think when we think growth, we think external growth. Right. And there's a lot of people that argue the only way to stay successful in the restaurant industry is you have to grow. Right. You have to switch it up. You have to. You need to evolve some way. However, from the outside looking in, because you're so about tradition and not changing, right, it's almost counter it's opposite of what people think, but yes. what is growth is my follow up question. Yes.
1: And, and I think, you know, a lot of it's, um, you have to look at the individual mm-hmm. and their personalities, you know, um, Emerald did fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're great friends and I respect the world of Emeril and everything. he's done. He's a great, great man. Um, But, you know, with me and the three sisters, we're not multi-unit people, you know, looking to do more than one restaurant, but there came a time around 2005, and early 2000s, really, um, where I personally wanted some creative growth. And if it's not gonna be another restaurant, what is it? So, one day I came in, and there was a, a wrapped gift on my desk. And it was wrapped beautifully with uh, a little fork and a spoon. I opened it up, and it was a proposal uh, from a a local lady named Judy Jurisich, who I had never met before. And it was her idea uh, for a cooking school here in New Orleans for the public. Um, There was one or two, but she had a unique vision. She had spent six months in Florence. And attended a lot of these half-day cooking experience type things, and and she said, "Why doesn't New Orleans have something like this?" So um, that's where I began teaching uh, for the public. Uh, it was called the New Orleans Cooking Experience. Not around anymore. Um, but for 15 years, every Thursday night, I stood behind an island and, and cooked for 10 people. Mm. And uh, I'd demo the whole menu for two hours and then we would all sit down and eat. And it was glorious,
0: glorious. And that was my creative fulfillment. So I'm loving that this is where you're going. So what I was hoping that you'd pick up and you did pick it up is that growth doesn't have to be external physical exactly. growth. <laughs> growth should be, in my opinion, internal. Yes. And if you focus on internal growth and for, pe- so for some people that's paying it forward, that's you don't truly master your craft until you can teach other people how to do it. And that's the the path of growth you chose. And that path of growth, the growth has served you. But I'm curious, how do you think that path of growth has has served you and your business?
1: Well, I think it's all interconnected. I mean, um, teaching those classes was really good for Brightson's Restaurant. (laughs) I mean, I still have friends. I had one in last week. Uh, who came down from New York and brought a, a restaurant person in to meet me? She had taken a couple of classes with me over the years, mm-hmm. and that thing ended five years ago. Um, uh, I, I still have um, so many new friends that that come to the restaurant off those classes but <clears throat> here 's another thing I say a lot: teaching is the best education. By starting these classes with Judy, I began to have to verbalize what I knew about my own food Yes, and put it into words. And over time, I got pretty darn good at it. And it helped me understand where I'm coming from and my own personal context and what makes New Orleans special, what makes Creole culture and cuisine so special um, and, and so it was, <laughs> and it was an incredible education and, and I get the same, but different kind of gratification teaching in the university context as well at Nichols. Um, one, two, three, four of my five chefs back there are, are graduates of Nichols, former students of mine. Um, uh, I also, um. Uh, one of the great things that Chef Emerald did too uh, was create the Culinary Arts Department, Help create the Culinary Arts Department at a local high school, uh, the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, uh, NOCA. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a special school, um, state-owned school, but it's strictly for the creative arts. You know, there's dance, there's classical music, there's theater, and for many years they didn't have culinary. So, Culinary started about twelve years ago. Uh, Amro built both of the kitchens. The last one, two million dollars that he wow. raised with his foundation. Wow! Uh, my pastry chef is one of my Nuka graduates. So then I started teaching. When the place opened, in my mind and to my wife, I said, "They better ask me." <laughs> so sure enough, uh, Sally, who runs the institute, came and invited me to be there. Chef in residence. Wow. Nice. So there was a time, my friend, when I had four jobs. That's ongoing. Wild. Ongoing. Weekly at the New Orleans Cooking Experience, two days a week at NOCA, and one day mm-hmm. a week at Nichols,
0: and oh yeah, the restaurant. What made you able to do this? What made this possible?
1: The people around me. Mm. What else? I couldn't say No. I couldn't say no. Um, It was so hard. Nothing's impossible. Oh, and then oh, I forgot. (laughs) In 2009, we did take on a second restaurant. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) How'd that go? (laughs) Well. (laughs) Now, here's here's a Frank story for you. I know I'm rambling off topic. No, this (laughs) is why we're here. Ramble away, my friend. So I grew up in a... Place called River Ridge, okay. which is a suburb, 17 minutes from the from here. And uh, the neighborhood restaurant my family grew up with was called Charles Seafood. And uh, my first restaurant memory is me sitting in a high chair with my mom picking boiled crabs for me. Wow! So I was an infant, and I can still see it in Charles Seafood dining room. This is where we got our seafood. You know, poor boys, boiled crawfish, crab, shrimp, all the good stuff, man. Family owned place. Charlie Palmezzano. Uh Charlie Petrosi, sorry. Uh, so anyway, we drive by that restaurant to and from work, you know, every day, twice a day. We drove by Charles Seafood and <clears throat> it was for rent. It was shut down. The owners had sold it. The next person that rented it didn't work out. So it was shut down. And we kept driving by, driving by for a few months. And um, one night I was following my wife home. And uh, she pulled in. I pulled in. She got the phone number and we called him up. Now, as I said before, I didn't want a second restaurant. That's not the reason we did it. Um, I wanted to bring back Charles Seafood for that community. Okay. The restaurant that I grew up loving so much. Got it. It meant so much to that community, and I wanted to bring it back.
0: So what ended up happening with the restaurant? Uh,
1: we, we're we very proud of what we did there. Um, it ended after four years because of an evil landlord.
0: Okay. So back to what we were talking about earlier, negotiating a lease. Yep right? Yep. What do we learn in this lesson? Well,
1: fortunately, one of my best friends is one of the best attorneys in the world. So we didn't get burned, but
0: uh, we exited. Okay. So what, what would you, going bef- knowing what you know now after this experience, what would you have done differently going into that agreement?
1: Um, well, let me just say that my attorney friend also grew up out there. And the landlord guys also grew up out there. We all knew each other growing up. And uh first thing Kyle warned me about was, you know who you're dealing with. They have a bad reputation. Yeah, we're not going to name names either. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. But uh, ultimately, yep, they did what they do.
0: So, I mean, I, I don't want to... I know it's probably sensitive because you don't want to talk poorly about anybody. But no, like, no, no. What, what was it that actually happened that you, you can give our listeners a foreshadowing of not to get into this, like avoid this situation. <clears throat>
1: they tried to seize my assets based on a technicality. Okay. By not doing some requested repairs in a timely manner. That's their MO.
0: So you were falling short of your rent. And Nope. No.
1: Nope. Nope. So nope.
0: help me understand.
1: Well, there was a list of uh, repairs Part of the lease was I'm responsible for the whole thing. Okay, all repairs and maintenance. So it was a list of things uh, like you know a hole in the parking lot. Got it. You know things like this, and that was in December. And uh, as it happened, um, my mom was having a bad time. Oh, and um, dementia, uh, multiple falls at home, in and out of ICU, trying to get her into a care facility and mm, I didn't get the repairs done.
0: Yeah. Um, this this immediately reminds me back to the words the words of our friend Paul Proudhon. Is he doing what did what do you say I wrote it down is is he trying 100% is yeah. he giving it his all yeah. or are you giving it your all? Oh. And this is what it means to be a man or just generally a good person. Yeah. Right? It's compassion. I needed a
1: little compassion. Exactly. And and those guys knew my mom.
0: Yeah. We don't need to go any deeper into that. Can't can't go any further.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah. So anyway, it all ended. But it was actually a good thing because it uh, (laughs) – immediately not immediately but shortly
0: thereafter uh, improved our quality of life just yeah. having one again <laughs> yeah and, and I, i'm i'm loving the story and i'm looking down we got uh, we have 25 minutes left together and i know you gotta start getting ready for service i want to respect your time uh the mission statement again inspire empower and and transform. You've definitely inspired us. You've Thank definitely you. empowered us for sure because Thank of you. The, the lessons you've you shared with us today. I want to focus on transformation now and in, 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 I can't help but think being in business now, you opened in 1986, correct? That's correct. 1986. We're now, what, how many total, okay, I'm horrible. I'm, I'm 35, six, so 35 years in business. Yeah. I was born in 85, easy math. Um, how How have you found the balance of maintaining and reserving your identity and keeping this place, you know, what it has always been and not changing, not staring too far off, off core, course of your brand and your identity, but also at the same time having to evolve because the business landscape is changing. How have you found that, that, that balance of maintaining your identity and who you are and what you do without sacrificing that to evolution in the changing landscape of business?
1: That's a very deep question. And um, I think it all comes back to people, you know, uh, uh I mean, look at the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, we shut down for four months. We could have opened sooner, but I didn't think it was safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this could be, you know, a very long story, but let me just say this uh we went to a meeting of hospitality people in march downtown at a hotel one monday morning uh, put on by our uh, tourist commission and the restaurant association and we were going to discuss the pandemic and how we as restaurants can deal with it what we have to do um, in this new landscape and before the meeting started uh, our governor called the head of the restaurant association and said, y'all can do takeout only. You got to shut down the dining rooms
0: and your food. I feel like is it, that's just does not do justice to your food. Right. Yeah.
1: Now this is transformation. Mm-hmm. That's what 2020 was all about. So we left, the meeting was called off. Uh, Marna and I left. Um, on the way home I'm calling my chefs Larry and Emily and Elliot I said we're closed on Monday mm-hmm. I said can you please come to my house uh, we need to make a game plan for the week uh, we can't do indoor dining anymore <laughs> so we did take out only mostly with the stuff on our regular menu which much of it did not travel well so Tuesday we did it Wednesday we did it Thursday I was standing in the hall watching customers pick up, most of whom, all of them are dear friends that we know. Um, This is before we knew about masks, things like that. And I'm seeing Marna, six inches from one of our best customers, you know, congregating, three or four people congregating. I shut the place down. Mm -hmm. I said, we are not doing this, honey. It's not safe. And so that was it, three days of that, and I shut down. And so uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, Congress did one of the best things they've ever done, uh, passing the CARES Act, uh, which increased unemployment. So all 20 of our employees were able to get on unemployment at a subsistence level. And I said, good. Now just stay there. Mm -hmm. When are we reopening? I said, I don't know. I shut it down. But you're okay. Stay home. Stay safe. Get your unemployment. If you want to go do side work, fine. But it's not safe for us to be in the restaurant. So that was April. The next month, May, early May, uh, the governor, who I love our governor, by the way. He's done an incredible job and is still doing an incredible job leading us through this. Um, but, you know, restaurants are part of the economy. They need to get open if they can. So... He announced phase one. You could open at 25% capacity. And so a local television station called me and said, Frank, you know, phase one, can we come over and talk about it, about your reopening? I said, um, I'm happy to talk to you, but I'm not reopening. She said, What? I said, I don't think it's safe to open right now. Mm-hmm. She said, Well, when are you going to reopen? I said, August. August? That seemed like forever. Why August for you? Because that's when the unemployment ended. Got it. Let's just sit tight. Yep. She said, oh, wait. That's part of the story, too. Yep. So they came over, <laughs> and yep. we talked about that. So uh, here's part of the transformation was the four months we were closed. Um, we were the beneficiaries of some very good help. And I will mention a name, the James Beard Foundation Mm -hmm. converted all of their resources to restaurant recovery. And all of us applied for a grant, and we got a a grant that was extremely helpful. For years, getting back to recipes, thousands of people have asked me, Frank, when are you going to write a cookbook? I'm like, oh. Is this the cookbook that's on the mantle behind us? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and I would say, well, when I, when I stopped cooking, I'll write. <laughs> so you made use of your time. <laughs> I stopped cooking. Yeah. <laughs> so Marnus said, why don't you write a cookbook for us? I had done one to benefit, um, the Houston hurricane victims a few years before. I said, okay. So I wrote one and, uh, it took off and I started, we sw- so still sell it through our website, brightsons.com. And then I did a second one, a summer edition. And, um, it's called stay at home cooking mm-hmm. because I'm a chef. Yeah.
0: I got to get a copy of those before. I, I don't cook here. home. Don't let me leave without a copy. You know, we cook
1: home Sunday night, maybe. Yeah. So now Maura and I are at home cooking every night.
0: And <laughs> so pace, right? it was a lot of fun <laughs>
1: for three months. So this is what it's like. <laughs> so the books, um, and then I did some of my seasoning blends, too, uh, and bottled and sewed them. And Marna set up a shipping department. She and Rhonda were in there shipping. We'd have eight, ten postal boxes every day going out of my house. Wow.
0: Those books paid our rent for four months. Do you mind getting into the revenue? Can you share numbers with how much you were able to generate?
1: Well, um, I think uh, just during that summer, uh, we probably sold – I don't know, 2,000 of each book. Wow. You know? How much were each book? 20, 25. So do the math. Right. And uh, so with that and the CARES Act, we had a target date. Got it. Well, actually, there was the first round of PPP, which didn't make sense for many people, including us. But I already had my target date. We're going to open August 1st. Take out only. Okay because i'm still not ready yeah. personally yeah i am not ready to do dining room what we do in restaurants is the most dangerous thing you can possibly do in a pandemic you get to get for an airborne <laughs> yeah. respiratory virus
0: closed space yeah lots of people sit
1: close to your family and friends take your mask off and eat and talk yeah no exactly i didn't want to expose my staff to it so About the time we opened, the second phase of PPP came out, and we were fortunate enough to get it. Yeah. Now, what that did was uh, solve the problem of what do we do with tipped employees if we're doing takeout only, Mm -hmm. whose salaries were so dependent on gratuities. Mm -hmm. So we were able to pay. Everybody came back except one young lady who moved away. Everybody wanted their job back, and it was my job to give it to them. Mm -hmm. So our servers became takeout specialists and phone answerers at $18 an hour. Nice. Thank you, PPP. Yeah. That's
0: creativity right there. Figure it out. We have
1: four of them sitting around all day long. Mm -hmm. We didn't do online ordering. We don't do online reservations. Mm -hmm. We're old school. Yeah. Talk to me. Mm -hmm. And then people would come pick it up. And so it was beautiful. It is beautiful. And then when PPP ran out in, in mid-November, that's when I opened up the dining rooms. I waited as long as I possibly could. Yeah. Do you still feel unsafe? Uh, I still feel we all have to be careful. Yes. Um, I think it's much, much better, and
0: and mainly because of vaccinations. Yes, yes. Um, We've covered so much, and the one thing I still want to get out of you is again this idea of transformation yes Uh, we are in a very unique time our industry is in a very unique time we're all forced to be still yes and the the to choose how we come back and i think we're we're, it's a great opportunity to really question what's broken with our industry what's wrong with our industry and what needs to change in our industry so somebody like yourself who has so much experience such a breadth of experience in this industry entire career in this industry In your opinion, what's broken with our industry and how should we choose to come back to transform the industry?
1: I I think the, the restaurant industry is at its most critical, pivotal time. And the reason is the economics do not work anymore. No, it's broken. It's totally
0: broken. What do you mean by that? What's broken about it?
1: The whole nature of restaurant economics are based on food costs and labor costs. Those are so ridiculous. I haven't even looked at last year's financial statement yet.
0: <laughs> so you're saying the costs of labor and food are yes. just constantly rising right now? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, let's let's step back a little bit. Uh you know, Every now and then you get a comment about, you know, thirty-five dollars, I can get that bottle of wine at the store for ten. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. What a ripoff. No, it's not. They're not seeing that person is not seeing what that revenue contribution does for the overall mm-hmm. experience. It's not a grocery store markup. It's paying for all these people. Mm-hmm. You can open up a shoe store with two or three employees and mark up X amount and do X amount of volume. And the math is pretty simple. Yeah. But in our business, there's so many moving parts from A all the way to Z, starting with suppliers, receiving, storage, mm-hmm. prep, cooking, plating, Serving, busing, washing, breaking down, et cetera. Yeah. So that's why that bottle of wine is $35. So, I mean, my transformation, Eric, was this. And it has been since 2020. Throw the business model out the door. yes. So what's your new model? What's your new approach? How did you change? It starts with people. Okay. The number one thing for me and for everyone else is get the right people into your business. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The people that want to be there, the people that want to do the job. How do you find those people? How do you keep those people around? I teach. What do you teach? I recruit. I pick and choose. What
0: are you teaching? <laughs> what, what are the lessons? Like what are you trying to instill? Opportunity. How do you teach? Opportunity?
1: You, when I tell young chefs looking for a job, whether it's at Brighton's or anywhere else, think about where you want to go. Ask to go in there and observe mm-hmm. for one hour or do a stash. Put your eyes on that operation. Is that going to be your happy place? Find your happy place first. Some of the greatest restaurants in the world are horrible places to work. Yeah. Find your happy place. Forget the title. Get your foot in the door with the chef you want to learn from, with the crew you want to be with, and let it roll.
0: So when you say you're, you're, you're teaching or you're, you're like, what are you teaching? What are the things that we need to be teaching young people coming in? And, and get, get specific. Who are we teaching?
1: Yeah, well, the difference between my generation and, and the current status is there's more culinary students. Mm-hmm. Now, that's on the wane, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, enrollment at school I think I think it's kind of a good at, thing.
0: I, don't think, yeah. I think kids were getting in trouble getting way too deep in debt to, yes, to I agree. learn it on the job. And, I agree. Yeah, uh, Education
1: never loses its value. But um, I believe it had created... Um, high expectations uh for entry into the workplace Mm -hmm. you know you're still gonna have to come in as an entry-level person pretty much or a line cook anyway uh and work your way up to uh supervisor management position in the kitchen you still have to earn that um but it does create a a more well-rounded base of uh, people to draw from and I try and do what Paul did for me is to just give them an opportunity and the tools and just let them see where they want to go and you know Brightson's does not offer uh, healthcare benefits 401k um, what we do offer is a happy workplace Um. You know, so you can go work at a hotel and get all that benefit stuff, and that's a wonderful thing. But you can spend some time here too and, and grow and, and, and become the person you want to be. You know, nothing's forever.
0: Chef, I'm going to drill down and go even further. You said give them the tools and the opportunities. Give me examples of the tools. When you Mentorship, one-on-one, you
1: know. Um, come learn from Chef Larry.
0: And what do those lessons that you're giving them look like? What are the things that you're teaching them?
1: Well, for us, and especially Chef Larry, it's consistency in your food and your work. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one thing that rubs him the wrong way, inconsistency. And I give you the tools in that binder to make it consistent. And and you learn some of the business part of it too uh, in the sense that we do a full daily inventory of every food product in the kitchen. Um, that's my baby.
0: Who's a part of this?
1: All, all of them. Who's every one of them. Every person. you Yes. Um, you know, we are small and our kitchen is small as you'll see. Uh, and because of that, we have to do things a certain way. And so there's internal controls. This is a big part of Brightson's operation. Um, they can see each, each day, Larry and I do the ordering I fax over a sheet with all the orders for the day, today's menu, today's prep list with every chef's name and list of duties every day. Yeah. This is because I am a line cook. I grew up a line cook, and I know the confusion and questions and crap that can go wrong in a work day. Did this get ordered? Why are we out of this? So we tighten down and try to remove... Um, the craziness from our work Mm -hmm. and control as much as we can so that they can concentrate on the food. And our whole system at night, uh, which is what they learn, the chefs that are doing the cooking, there's two spots on the line, all they have to do is cook. Mm -hmm. They don't even plate their own food. Mm -hmm. They run out of something, they ask for it, we bring it to them. It's all focused on the food. And what I learned from Paul is, Food is at its best when it's made. Mm -hmm. Simple, right? Let's get it from the stove to the table in the shortest amount of time. We don't use trays. We don't use plate covers. We don't even have stations. If there's food in the window, a server, any server will pick it up and deliver it. What I want to see is steam coming off the plate (laughs) Mm -hmm. at the table. So these are basic fundamental things about our jobs. Um that become second nature. Um, and then the, the other thing about our philosophy and our cuisine at Brighton's is that um, I, I have one foot in Creole tradition and, and then the other in whatever's next. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, that was the other the, one of the questions I had is because you're so about tradition. You're so yeah. about maintaining history and culture and paying it forward and cementing those things and keeping them the same. But there's a lot of people that, that say you need to keep things fresh to keep your, 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 your kitchen, your staff excited. Oh yeah. Like they're growing. So how do you find that balance of maintaining oh, we do. tradition and then also and evolving?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of it is uh, our menu changes seasonally. Number one, uh, we're just entering into crawfish season, um, which is a big thing for us. Uh, but here's his transformation for you. Uh, when we opened uh, 35 years ago and we got that big review, mm-hmm. um, I was viewed as, you know, if I remember the the words exactly, reinventing Creole cuisine. Ooh, how'd that feel? Oof, <laughs> like, mm, like, you know, the hot new kid on the block. Yeah. I still feel like I'm doing pretty much the same thing yeah. 35 years later, but now I'm considered the old school traditionalist. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a title I will proudly carry. Yeah. I'll make the gumbo, the trout manier, the bread pudding, barbecue shrimp. I will be that person because it's harder and harder to find.
0: Yeah, yeah. Chef, I've loved this conversation. Is there anything that you were hoping we would discuss that did not come out of today's chat? I thought you said two days not two hours uh, we can go <laughs> I'm along. just getting started we can go along <laughs> uh, seriously i love this conversation i know you got to start focusing for your, your dinner service and we still have the speed round uh, i just can't say thank you enough. this has been a great chat one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back today's episode is brought to you by talk to the manager look nowadays people rather send you a text message than speak to you directly face to face that's just the way people choose to communicate if there's not much we can do about it or is there? Talk to the manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is also convenient to you. Don't worry about personal information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the number that talk to the manager provides. You can even delegate customer feedback and divide the workload amongst your managers. Multiple managers can receive these texts. When one manager replies to a customer, the other staff will see their responses too. What I personally love most about Talk to the Manager is that you can fix issues immediately in private before complaints go public online. Many times when people do write a negative review, it's because they just want to be heard. And Talk to the Manager gives them that outlet to be heard before they bring it publicly and drag your name through the mud. Plus, with Talk to the Manager, get issues brought to your attention, whether it's an issue with your restaurant service, product, or facility. Your guests will let you know whether you want to hear it or not, but this will help you improve. Using Talk to the Manager is so intuitive that no technology is required. If you can send a text message, you can use Talk to the Manager. Show guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. That's www.talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable. you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant unstoppable members get three months. Absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S. Dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. All right, we are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you most believe contributes to your success?
1: 100% effort.
0: What is your biggest weakness?
1: Not giving 100% effort.
0: Wait, so you you give 100% <laughs> yes. effort and you don't give? I'm
1: confused. What do you mean by that? Well, it, it happens when you're 67 years old. Mm. You, compare you know yourself what my to the New Year's resolution was? What's that? Do less.
0: Yeah. Well, it's hard to compare yourself to the, the earlier version of yourself, I would imagine. Yeah. I'm, I can't relate to that yet, but I can imagine that you hold yourself to that same standard and it becomes harder over time to, to meet that standard. Yeah. That's tough. I, I get that. What's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're growing your team? Do you have the fire and the desire? How do you know they have it?
1: We can see it in their eyes. I can um, are you willing to learn? We can teach you
0: yeah um what happens when you don 't find the people who are willing to to learn
1: it 's painful yeah. uh, the worst part of, of my job is is hiring and the f- couple of times i 've had to fire um fortunately you know i i've been i 'm the luckiest guy in the world mm-hmm. um because i I meet people uh in in my teaching job so I have people in on my radar already Mm -hmm. uh, for when I get openings got it uh what's your biggest challenge today um managing the unpredictability of um the market uh, food markets
0: how are you um dealing with that Roll with it. What else can you do? Right, it's why,
1: our, it's why our menu changes daily. It doesn't change dramatically, but I have the freedom to do that.
0: Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a core value, a way to be, a way to act.
1: Um, one of the things I say when I'm walking out of the kitchen, if I'm not gonna be there for service, be safe, make them happy, take care of each other.
0: What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within the four walls of your business to go above and beyond what's expected from the guest, but not common throughout the industry.
1: Be their friend. What
0: does it mean to be their friend?
1: Uh, I want them to feel like they're in
0: our home, and uh, we get that comment a lot. What's one book that's a must-read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. Go deeper. What's one of your biggest lessons from that book that you didn't previously know?
1: Um, the How transformative true hospitality is. You know, it, it's... By giving, you always receive more
0: than you give. And I do believe we can transform the, transform the world with this industry. I think we're, we're, we're one of the last remaining industries that focuses solely on the relationship. I think we've forgotten how important relationships are to mental health and just general health. Yes. And I think we're, we're hanging on to that. And I think that there's going to be a time where we are at the leading edge of bringing that back. In a world that's never been more connected and disconnected at the same time, yeah. I think we're going to be the, the string that's hanging on. I agree. And it brings us back. We, we saw it
1: after Katrina.
0: Yeah. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Um,
1: consider each person as an individual. Mm.
0: So we're talking about. Be proactive rather than reactive. Yes. Uh, what is one service you've hired or outsourced so the idea behind this question is how to connect good people with good people something you don't do in-house that it makes more sense for you to outsource because this company does it better than you could ever do on your own
1: <clears throat> probably the most radical change in our operation over the years is getting a POS <laughs> system oh yeah yep so are you still, are you in the market no 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 we we we've had it for a few years now and um it's been wonderful uh, learning experience, but we've still, we still do reservations by hand mm-hmm. by the phone.
0: So the next question is kind of aligned with the one that you just shared with us. And this is, I know as a traditional operator, who you know, you take pride in that. Uh, what is one piece of technology you've recently adapted within the restaurant that's had a huge impact on operations? Yeah.
1: The POS. I mean, it's, I mean, dealing with handwritten checks is, is problematic in its own. But yeah. it's helped us um, uh, run
0: a cleaner, leaner operation. And what POS are you using? Um, I think it was Micros. Positouch. Positouch. Okay. Positouch? Positouch. Positouch. Um, I've heard good things about Positouch. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and this is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? I love the thought you're putting into this.
1: Mm. Pass it on.
0: 1
1: Don't forget your loved ones. 2 Leave a mark. Do good.
0: Three. I've loved this conversation, Chef. uh Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule for me to to share your story to pass it on. Uh, it's been a real treat. And we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I found you, Paul Truman. Called you out, uh, Phil Mosley. I actually called you out too. I don't know. Are you familiar with Phil? You oh yeah. Phil. Of course you know Phil. Uh, I'm going to be connecting with him and his partner. were talking Tarn. about him yesterday. Yeah, he's great. They're they're fun dudes. Oh, I love him I had fun with them last night. Uh, he called you out as well. Who do you respect? and admire in this industry and if you find that they're a guest on the show and you could hear their story and some of the lessons they have who would that be chef nina compton i love chef nina compton she's, i do
1: too she's been on the
0: show i've
1: had her i've gotten to her name anyone else she's remarkable and uh, i'm so happy she
0: chose new orleans yes can you give me another name since i had her recently um susan spicer Susan, yes, she is on my list. One of my dear friends.
1: I'd love to um, her. Don't tell anybody, but she's been my girlfriend for 40 years.
0: Okay. So, <laughs> it's our secret.
1: Don't tell my wife. I
0: mean, I won't tell anybody, but um, I don't, this recording might tell a few people. <laughs> yeah, Susan and I
1: are buds for, for a long, long time, I and, and I, I respect and admire her so much. And, and you know, one, one thing that, that she and Nina have in common is that they're hands-on hard-working chefs yes
0: and i admire that to no end nina was great susan uh you're on my radar even before this i'd love to get you on the show i'm coming after you and i, I just can't say thank you enough Chef. my pleasure thank you for yeah. the opportunity there is no questioning you are unstoppable ah <laughs> yes <laughs> cheers <laughs> there is another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable chef Frank Brightson man. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, for sharing your story, for sharing your knowledge and your mentorship, uh, just such a, an incredible career in other. Uh, it's no wonder why, uh, you're at the top of your game and why your name is just being, uh, cemented into the history of, uh, Louisiana, uh, and, creole and and cajun cooking i mean just amazing stuff uh and i think the big lesson for me in today's episode is uh this lesson that we pulled from uh chef frank's story where he was interviewing for commander's palace uh and he was going through the interview process with chef paul and just man this the, the level of of just care and selectivity and three hours One hour, three interviews, three hours, the process to uh, find an apprentice or just just that whole process. I think today we're just so transactional and we'll take anybody and I think... yeah is it harder to put that much time and energy into into recruiting and hiring people yes but over time i feel like it pays off and i think that this is a great example of that and just also taking an interest in where your people want to go what are you trying to do what are your goals how can i help you get there and then help people get there and when you make it about other people things come back around um and they and they always do and i mean i think just the looking at chef frank brightson in in their restaurant breaks bryson's restaurant uh they've had such longevity with people at this restaurant. Uh, Frank and his wife and and his wife's sisters, I mean, all still work at the restaurant. I mean, that's preservation. That's that's longevity and that's saying something right there it's just amazing what they've been able to accomplish over at brightson's restaurant um so great stuff happening over at restaurant unstoppable if you guys are not in the network yet I, i don't know what you're waiting for be a part of the conversation and the more people that join the network the better i can serve you because really at the end of the day i'm just there to listen to you to listen to your pain points and to go to work for you because you might not have access to the best mind's in the restaurant industry, but I do. And I can put you in the same room as them. So come join the network, uh, be a part of the conversation and let's learn together. Let's grow together and let's transform the industry together. All right. Uh, that's it for today. Uh, thank you guys so much for sticking around this long. And, uh, this is one episode that you want to share. So if you haven't shared this podcast yet, please go ahead, uh, help spread the word, share this podcast, tag me, Eric Cacciatore when you do. All right. Until next time, peace out.